After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, it's Mind Rolling with Raghu Marcus and my special guest, an old friend, fairly old. He's not that getting old. older. You're getting older. David Nickturn. Welcome, David. Thank you, Raghu. So David's got a fantastic new book that really fits in. I haven't said this to David, but it really fits in with the, uh, shall we say, the credo of Be Here Now Network, which Mind Rolling is a part of. And uh, you're, and if you've been listening to mine, uh, to be here now network rather, you've heard some stuff from David because he's been on before and he's done stuff with Krishna Das, and uh, so you may be a little bit familiar with him. The book is called Awakening from the Daydream, and why I say it really fits is because he is translated. I, I won't go so far as to say very esoteric Tibetan Buddhist teachings, although that that is part of it, but really brought it into a fundamental understanding that we uh, can uh, use on a day-to-day basis, that we can have some relationship to these teachings, uh, given where we are now in um, 2016. So... Uh, I actually really appreciate that. And oh, just for anybody who doesn't know David, uh, there, David is, uh, is a real Renaissance man, when you really think about it, right, Dave? Um, I'm, I'm going from the, the, uh, the stuff that uh, how I met David is really, uh, I don't remember how we met, maybe through Christian us, but maybe not. Uh, also, because we were both in the music business. And uh, and David, uh, if you're going to have the hundred best songs ever, okay, the top hundred, maybe 125, I don't know, <laughs> okay, Midnight at the Oasis, it's got to be in there, and David wrote that, and uh, Maria Moldauer sung it. For those of you who never heard it before, please go to your, you know, iTunes or whatever, and pick it up, and, but, uh, but the interesting thing is, see, David, who works with Christian Das as well, and uh, it's not just uh, he wrote that song. When did you write that song? Was that in, I don't remember. Is that mid-70s, was, late, early 80s or something? Yeah, it was uh, 74, and then it was nominated for Grammy, I think, in 75. Uh-huh. So it's around then. Um, 
But what I love, David, is that you, and very recently, in recent years, uh, through those uh, magic years of yours, found Lana Del Rey, who is like a major star at this point. I, I remember, I remember you telling me about it before anything happened. Yeah, I'm I'm recording this really amazing young woman who's just got so much talent and so on. And David had a you know a small indie label. And and this whole thing is blown up like crazy. So uh, that's a big kudo as well. So uh, not to mention, and David also is a writer. He's been writing for the Huffington Post and, of course, this book. But more than anything, and, and on past podcasts, David and I have talked about it, how uh, David is uh, one of the first students of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, one of our beloved teachers and one of the most important uh, teachers that we talk about on my on mind rolling, and we have been for the couple of years we've been doing this, and uh, and I think David, you and I even found out that we <clears throat> did we we met up without meeting up kind of a thing at Tale of the Tiger in Vermont in the early seventies. So uh, I uh, and this book starts off by the way. Uh, you know some early recollections of uh, of Trungpa, and yeah, just let's start there because he is just. Uh, you know, I talk about uh, some of the great uh, teachers, gurus, enlightened beings. You know, however anybody wants to refer to them, as very enigmatic. You can mm-hmm. never, uh, you, you know, you just can't uh, sort of put your finger on it. And to say this is this, this is this, or this is that. Just talk about a little bit about uh, your experience with Trungpa when you first met him and so on. Well, you know, Raghu, the first thing I thought of when you said that is in Shambhala, there's something called the Four Dignities, uh, which are different sort of uh, qualities and virtues in, in the development of warriorship in that tradition. And the fourth one is called Inscrutable. Mm-hmm. And and it's not like, you know, somebody's trying to be devious, but the metaphor for it in some of the texts says, like space, which cannot be punctured by an arrow. That's the definition of inscrutable. So I think when you think of Trungpa Rinpoche, you have to a little bit think in those terms that it was um, that his mind was like space in a way. It really you couldn't you couldn't fathom it. You couldn't uh, grasp it. And. Uh, then the other aspect of that is it's just sort of a reflective surface, and you get your own image back mm-hmm. in a very, in a very clear but sometimes very intense way. And um, a lot of the teaching is not really somebody like that telling you stuff, but just reflecting your own kind of image back to you in a in a in a clear way for you to work with. So, on a human level, he was for me was uh, great fun because there's a human dimension to all these teachers too. They're in a human body and they're having a human life. So uh, he had a great sense of humor. He liked to play. Um, he was adventurous, you know. He 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 was. Um, I, I I would say this. There's something that I'm doing recently that really has made me appreciate him in another way, which is I'm teaching frequently in Japan. Oh yeah, you mentioned. Yeah. So. We're now, believe it or not, taking these teachings and sort of trying to find the right way to express them in Japanese. Mm. And I thought Trungpa Rinpoche came to America in 1970, and 
he already had been living in England for years, so he was quite adept with the English language. But he's really responsible for translating huge amounts of text into English, and not just into English, but into the vernacular that we could understand. So we sometimes talk about translating and then translating the translation again to make it you know, more accessible. And that's really tricky from language to language. I'm really appreciating that going into Japanese. Yeah. 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 Like what exact words would you say to communicate a particular thing? I want to read a little something around your meeting with Rinpoche from the book. Uh, he seemed to know all of my neurotic patterns and knew how to resolve them. He was killing me softly with my own song. I love that. <laughs> um, I remember thinking that I had nowhere to hide. I mean, this is all very reminiscent of uh, yeah. and familiar sounding with uh, right. our guru Neem Karoli Baba. Um, nowhere to hide. In the end, I felt compelled to renounce it all and become a monk. <laughs> I, I remember going through, yes, I'm a sadhu. I'm never going to get married now. And I'm going to live in India. <laughs> of course, I managed to regroup and continue to inhabit the six realms for the next 40 years or so. <laughs> but at that time, I could not imagine going on with it. There really seemed to be no point at all in continuing to hang out in these familiar, repetitive patterns now that I recognize them for what they were. <laughs> yes, and that's the rest of our lives moving yeah. on to that, right? I mean, pretty pretty amazing. Um, of course, if you go forward from there, it explains sort of, if you just read the next paragraph um, from where you were, there's a kind of sense of a, an option of, continuing with what we're doing, but sort of letting the Dharma kind of leak into it in progressive stages, mm. and that having its own potency too, rather than pure renunciate path. Right. And Oh, and what we, uh, I would be remiss for not giving the uh, subtitle of Awakening from the Daydream, which is Reimagining the Buddha's Wheel of Life. So maybe a little brief uh, explanation of that uh, would help. Uh, just uh, for people to digest what we're really talking about here, because it yeah. really sets the, it is what the book integrally is. Well, the Wheel of Life is a famous uh, painting, or Tonka painting, as they called it, um, and supposedly was you know, designed under the direction of the Buddha himself. So it sort of uh, represents a lot of very, very um, basic and pure Dharma teachings about how things are, uh, and particularly it's a portrait of what's called samsara, or the cycle of suffering, cyclic existence. So that's nothing other than just kind of, I say, like you wake up in the morning and you say, here we go again. <laughs> it's mm. that feeling of like this, or mm. Groundhog Day. Yeah. It's a really good analogy, where you feel like um, somehow your experience is not fresh. It's, it's kind of... Uh, there's a repeat sign somebody put on without telling you about it, you know, onto your score. And you're just looping through again and again with different moods um, and different tone settings to that. So what the six realms, which is a featured part of the Wheel of Life, is describing is six different contexts or settings or mental landscapes, you could say, that govern, that, that filter, that color our, our, and, and color our projections about our life and what we're seeing and what we're experiencing. And, and they really range uh, in texture from kind of a, a fixation on pleasurable outcomes and a fixation on pain and everything in between. So 
you know, that's how we experience. We experience. We try to navigate towards pleasurable outcome, and we're trying to avoid pain, and that puts us squarely into what's called the human realm, which is where I'm talking to you from right now. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I love this little thing around karma, though, too. You know, people talk yeah. about karma and. Yes, I'll punch you in the face and I will get punched back. <laughs> this is yeah. karma. Uh, but I love your analogy. It's fantastic. Sometimes tropical fish in a tank leave a tiny, thin trail of poop behind them as they swim around the tank. Once they have completed one cycle around, all of a sudden the poop is right in front of them. <laughs> That's familiar, too. This is how karma works, right? You can almost imagine the fish saying to herself, now where did that come from? In this metaphor, that fish is us, the tank is the is illusion samsara, and the poop is the result of our habitual behavior. <laughs> and, um, and so everybody out there, this book is really uh, a lot about how we can deal with that habitual behavior. A lot of the, uh, there's a lot of great stuff, and then we'll go over a couple of things. Uh, obviously... Uh, uh, just to say that the six different uh, realms that you're talking about here, the God realm, the jealous God realm, the human realm, the animal realm, and the hungry ghost realm, and the hell realm. Those are the realms that uh, right. that are part of this uh, whole thing. So there's a couple here that I especially <laughs> wanted to discuss because I think uh, everybody can relate. Uh, the jealous God realm. Can we talk about the mm -hmm. jealous God, God realm okay, a little bit? It's you know, Raghu, I, I had in mind when I wrote this, the real fruition of this would be a interactive media game in which you play the Wheel of Life. Oh. And you enter, you choose your realm, you choose a setting, you kind of choose a backstory for yourself, and then you kind of interact from that ground and see what happens, which is sort of you get a karma lesson from playing the game. But it'll be fun. And um, the, the byline was going to be, uh, learn how to win the game you're already playing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if, if you tune into the realms, you recognize them as modalities that you, you've been through all six. Uh, most of the people we would know could recognize elements of themselves in all six settings. But in general, people tend to gravitate more towards one or two of them by sort of, uh, you know, their orientation in life. And in the traditional teachings, you could actually be reborn fully into one of those realms. So that's the classic way of looking at it. But I kind of allowed that to be mentioned. And then I said, let's just look at it from the more psychological point of view of us as human beings going through these different states of mind. And that's the way Trungpa Rinpoche taught it in 1971. He, it was very psychologically oriented, the whole discussion, whereas some people will talk about this quite literally. Mm-hmm. Um, but let, let's talk about this one particular one, yeah. the jealous okay. God realm, um, yeah. <laughs> which uh, people find themselves in a world of paranoia, jealousy, relentless competition, and one-upmanship. Power and control are the currency of the jealous God realm. And this, of course, we can all relate to this individually, but then if we look at it, this landscape of our culture right now, mm. socially, politically, all of it, uh, yeah. it's... It's rather ugly how this particular realm is standing out quite as yes. much as it is, right? Yes. Well, the first thing about the jealous God realm, which is called the Asura realm in the in Sanskrit, and titans, they're, they're sort of uh, power-hungry individuals. In the classical literature, the gods have kind of made it. In the Devaloka, these are 
you know, these are people who have tremendous good karma and they're sort of, uh, you know, saturated with pleasures of all kinds, could be physical or, or, or spiritual pleasure, but there's an attachment to that bliss, which causes a sort of ignoring of anything that might deteriorate it. Uh, so that's why the Devaloka is not the target in Buddhism. That's considered a kind of, you could say, a finer sand trap, a more like a golden mouse trap, you know. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> which is funny. So um, then the jealous gods in the traditional image are always trying to conquer the gods. They're trying to get where they, what they have, get to where they are, and they never can get there. So as a result, they're always into the one-upmanship of just their climbing the hill to get to the top. And um, they define their position on that uh, in relation to putting down others. So there's that, you know, I know what you're referring to, exactly what you're referring to, and have been thinking about it a lot. We are definitely seeing a God realm, I mean, a jealous God realm kind of opera playing out right. on national television right now. So the, the notion of putting down is very important and also, you know, kind of putting yourself above. Uh, but it's an endless struggle because you never really get to the point where you can relax and say, I've made it, which the gods have already said, this is okay, These, you know, uh, I've made it, so I don't really have to engage in that kind of activity. Right. So, yes, politically, uh, another uh, politics is a great landscape for the jealous God realm. The entertainment business that you and I have worked in for so many years has a lot of that energy in it. You know, what, you're, you're only as good as your latest hit of your very yeah. God realm, <laughs> a jealous God realm kind of a take. Yeah. You always have to keep producing. Yep. Um, well, just a little from this. It seems that no aspect of life is free from the scheming, which is the constant plotting and maneuvering to maintain our status. Clubs to which we belong, where we eat, where we shop. So, you know, everybody, just think about this. This is all of us on a day-to-day -day basis. Where we shop, the clothes we wear, the car we drive, all re represent status and achievement as much as a standard of living. Friends, lovers, even family can become tools or trophies in the competitive mindset. My wife always says to me, yeah, I'm your trophy wife, right? <laughs> she's way younger. We choose our friends for all kinds of reasons, but one of the reasons may be the advantage they afford us or simply how they reflect on us. While we may also concern ourselves with the quality of our children's education, we may be influenced to select their school based on prestige. With every situation there is the possibility for competition. So th this this is an outstanding um, uh, chapter as far as I'm concerned because mm -hmm. it is so easy for everybody. Not, not I mean, every one of these, as you said, every one of these realms, everyone can relate to in some way or another. Uh, but this in particular is uh, pernicious, and uh, it's, it's why... Uh, you know, I, oh, by the way, in the book, uh, the way you set the book up, which I like as well, is uh, first uh, elucidating on what, what, the, what that realm is and then talking about the problem. And in this case, um, uh, the main obstacle to finding balance or peace, and by the way, our whole thing at um, uh, Be Here Now Network is about finding balance. That's our motto, yeah, great. how to find balance. In fact, uh, we have... Mm. Uh, we're just coming out with, uh, this is a little ad here. That's <laughs> not really. Go for it. Yeah, it's uh, called the Heart Mind app. It's an app mm -hmm. that is dedicated to finding uh, balance in, in our lives and, and has uh, meditations from different people. Um, we need to get one from you, at, uh, which we'll do at the end of this. Uh, 
and um, just there's a, a, all of these podcasts that I've been doing, uh, and I've done with our friend David Silver as well, uh, we have uh, extracted different uh, topics to create uh, a very, you know, the kind of, the way that we're talking now, it's, it's not somebody giving a lecture, it's this, this easy back and forth. Sure. And so it's kind of a little bit of a, a way for people to, to receive information with some sugar on it, so to speak. And uh, so that's just, uh, that's just out there, folks. Go ahead and uh, pick that up. Uh, just go to your iTunes store and heart, mind, one word. Um, so the main obstacle... Which find, is, by the way, yeah. we're chitta. In Sanskrit, really means heart mind. Right. There's one word for both. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. like bodhicitta, waking bodhicitta, heart mind. Yeah, and that's that's where we're trying to go with with all of this. And well, it's also uh, well, you know, I mean, David comes uh, uh, to the retreats that we hold uh, every year in Maui with Ram Das, and he comes and he plays with Krishna Das, and uh, David plays guitar so beautifully and adds so much to uh, to the kirtans. And and it's a real combination of uh, teachers like David and other Buddhist teachers like Sharon and uh, Sharon Salzberg and, and and Joseph Goldstein and uh, not Joseph rather uh, Jack Cornfield, um, and it's a combination of what what our tradition is through Ramdas Krishnas in particular at these retreats, and and the and it really is a, a bringing together of heart mind from two different tra- traditions, which is very much what uh, we were given by Neem Karoli Baba. So. Uh, so it's a, a, a beautiful thing. The main obstacles to finding balance or peace is in the jealous God, God realm is an ongoing sense of paranoia derived from constant competition. It is difficult to develop ca- compassion when dominated by such a mindset. Well, let's talk about that uh, mm-hmm. because eventually that is because uh, you also give sort of the antidote to um, to the actual uh, issues around that particular God realm, and, and in this case, so talk about compassion is, is very much that. Right. Well, the idea was like to see these realms, each one of them as a, as a kind of particular type of fixation, you know, a place where you get stuck um, psychologically that then begins to affect your environment, your physical setup. It's all like a kind of mirrored, uh, environment that is bouncing back at you. So for each realm, the idea is not to just illuminate this and go, ha, 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 now you know where you're stuck. The idea of the Buddhist path is is literally to find a way out of the six realms. And what Buddha is said to have done is transcended the six realms. So the Buddha in the diagram, the original painting, is outside of the six realms. Then he reappears in a different form in each one of the six realms, speaking the language metaphorically of the beings that are caught up in that way. So that's where the Dharma teachings come into play. They're expressed in a lot of different ways. So each, what I did was I gave a meditation practice for each of the six realms that would address the mentality of it. So in the jealous God realm, because there's so much competition, there's a complete, you know, uh, cutting off of the idea of caring for others in a genuine way and putting others' interests, you know, at the level of your own or above your own, that just isn't happening. And so the antidote was doing some kind of compassion practice. There are quite a lot of them in Buddhism, but the um, Tonglen or the sending and taking, exchanging oneself for others, which probably most people know, is uh, is suggested there. But in general, any idea of kind of tuning into the fact that there are other people uh, in the room and that they 
are human and that you know you could help them and you could connect with them is 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 what's missing in that realm that's that, and that's why somebody's stuck there even though it can feel quite powerful to be there it can be quite you know um compelling to be there mm. uh, and and it's not that easy to talk to somebody who is there about ordinary stuff mm. yeah that power part of this whole thing uh it's not the the striving the jealousy the striving the one-upmanship all of that the status and everything that the power connection to all of that is is feeding oneself in that way and you know and those people that uh like many of us that are on the spiritual path uh, I think I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how how subtle this whole thing can get, and we're not necessarily talking about. I'm not. I'm jealous of David Nickturn's um, progress on the spiritual path, and I need to, you know, I need to advance myself to uh, meet that. We're not talking about that kind of gross thing, but there are many subtle levels of this jealous God realm, and this adherence to uh, wanting to have power. Uh, over and of course it's manifests in many different ways from as we hear of teachers uh abusing quote unquote the the power of their position and yeah. so on yep. yeah but talk about the more subtle ways in which we get caught in this realm well uh the the most subtle way in every realm is when you think you have the answer and you kind of um wield the answer as another kind of form of uh, pride or egotism. Hmm. So teachers are like, like you could go through all six realms and show a style of teaching Dharma itself that sort of is infected in a way by the quality of each of these realms, which is what you're kind of implying that even a spiritual teacher or some, somebody who has some level of realization could easily manifest in the jealous God aspect of it by simply pumping themselves up, becoming impervious to feedback, for example, um, by losing some of their humanity and, and, and becoming kind of like, uh, you know, higher level or, uh, you know, perfected in some way and putting other people down, creating uh, entourage situations. So absolutely, this is uh, in each of these realms, you can look at a way of tainting the act of liberation itself with the, the, with the toxic substance that's in the realm that you're trying to liberate from. Yeah. So that's why the... the the description is so complete because the subtlety is ultimately, Raghu, there's only one real subtlety, which is self-deception. It all comes down to that. And and sort of, uh, you know, taking an honest look at oneself, wherever and whatever level of whatever you have going on, and not being afraid to, to, um, to soften and be genuine and be honest with where you are. Great teachers have that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but it's which, an advanced level because along the way you can get kind of, you know, you read your own reviews, you know, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. And unfortunately, of course, uh, since we uh, in America, our pockets are ripe for picking, so to speak, many of these people who are not free and come over with mm -hmm. and have a little bit of an agenda. And then we hear of all these uh, sometimes nasty stories of, of people being taken advantage of. And so that requires everybody uh, a little bit of uh, discrimination yeah. in terms of working with teachers and, and so on. And only if the teacher is completely free can you uh, consider 
what we so easily call gurus. Everybody's a guru, but yeah. in truth, uh, it, it has to be uh, somebody who is no longer uh, in the uh, throat. Gives a shit about being a guru. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> That's, yeah. Actually, if you really want to put it there, yeah. if, if there's some feeding tube going in through that territory, uh, you can sort of smell it. Yes, we are talking about the, the true guru doesn't give a shit about being a guru at all, right? That's that's the that's the big but difference. It, but he or she also doesn't mind being one, right? So that's a fine line there, because, um, you know, I, I've been saying this to people for years now. Like, there's a sweet spot between pushing your agenda and holding back. That is like right on the dot, right on the edge. That's a great spot. In other words, if you find yourself pushing, leaning in, that puts you out. Of, you're talking about balance, right? Yeah. And if you find yourself sort of holding back uh, from the Leela, from the fray of it all, um, that also puts you off balance. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's quite exposing once we start talking about these kind of things. And if we all agree that the main obstacle is self-deception, then, you know, we, of course, look around the landscape and go, this person's doing that. That's too bad. That's too bad. But the main focus is on ourselves to really make sure that we're not helping to create that 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 kind of uh, environment. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next uh, we can't cover all of the realms. By the way, we would yeah. be here for uh, probably a couple eternity. of weeks <laughs> at least. Be here for eternity, as we say. Yeah. <laughs> but I I do want to go to another one that's. Uh, Awfully relatable, unfortunately. It's called the Hungry Ghost Realm. I knew you were going there. Yeah. <laughs> I could feel it's going yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, talk about the Hungry Ghost Realm for a minute, and I have a couple of uh, quotes <clears throat> here that I like. Well, again, it's great to look at the traditional background of it. In the traditional paintings, the Hungry Ghost um, is – you see, I had, a, I had a new artwork commissioned for the – cover of this book which people which can, is can absolutely see. gorgeous and you'll see yeah. it on the uh, page that uh, you have it there can you hold it up for a second yeah, yeah except for one thing okay hang on because i'm going to tell you i i also uh made a little i've made a couple of mistakes here dave today it's, it's too okay. early in the morning for me but <laughs> okay the cover of david's new book oh, is that? absolutely gorgeous okay and so, yeah, so you actually have this. To your left, and we can see it. A little left? How about that? Yeah, a little up. Up? A little more, a little more left. Left? There you go. Okay, now you're Perfection. seeing the whole. Yeah, that's it. Okay, great. So if you see, and, and I don't want to ask Greg to hold it up, but you can look at it uh, at Amazon.com right before you buy it. You can actually look at the cover as much as you want <laughs> and blow it up. But um, the, the uh, artwork we had done, instead of the traditional realms paintings we had um, contemporary settings that communicate the same quality of the energy so in the hungry ghost realm there's it's sort of meant to be a black uh, black friday sale you know the day after thanksgiving yeah, yeah. and everybody's rushing the, the merchandise you know yeah. so in the hungry ghost realm there's a feeling of the only way to gain um, any kind of happiness is consumption basically if you're not consuming, you can't be happy. So the problem is there's no contentment ever. You never achieve a level of having consumed something and being satisfied. The act of consuming has become mistaken for contentment. 
So in each of these realms, the peace that you're talking about has been mistaken, basically. It's, it's basically a mistake. And you think the peace is, if I keep competing and keep getting to the top, then I'll have peace. If In the hungry ghost realm, if I keep consuming, if I keep you know, uh, uh, clinging and craving to things, that act will bring me peace. But it's exactly that act that keeps you from having peace. So that's the irony of the realms, is they're sort of self-created uh, realms of imprisonment in that way. Yeah. Hungry ghost one is a model for addiction. It's really, in modern terms, the best image would be somebody um, craving uh, something outside of themselves that they see as, if I only had that, then I would be happy. And as soon as you get it, you're not happy. So then the craving continues and you go deeper and deeper into it. Mm-hmm. So addiction is a perfect uh, modeling of the hungry ghost realm. Yeah. But how about this uh, from your book where everyone can relate? You know, you don't have to be an addict to relate to this one. No. Have you ever been lonely? Okay. Yeah, baby. Lonely. <laughs> All right. Stressed out? No, we don't get stressed out. Uh, Anxious. <laughs> okay. And reach for something, a drink, mm. a snack, some affirmation mm. of worth, while at the same time feeling that whatever you can grab cannot possibly fill that huge and i'm putting huge hole huge ass hole but it's just a hole if the answer is yes then you have visited the hungry ghost realm all right then we've all been there you know constant craving it's like that song right who did you know when i did the book originally i had all kinds of things in there that the you know the publisher sort of shaved yeah and one of them is i had a song for each realm oh really oh yeah and constant craving was the song for that realm that's oh, such a constant tough. craving has always been. Uh, that Katie Lang song? Yeah. I'm going to, you know huh. what? I'm putting that song right here in this podcast <laughs> and let them sue us, whoever the record company is, okay? <laughs> Don't sue me, sue Raghu. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, we desperately seek food, drink, recognition, love, the ex- and so on. The experience of contentment is always just beyond our grasp, as you say, and, and slips away as we reach for it. Um, But what I love here is what defines this realm is the repetitive, obsessive, relentless, and urgent quality of our neediness. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that's a day-to-day thing for all of us, maybe on the most subtle of levels. uh, Sure. You know? But, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really, and again, what's mistaken there is attraction, which is an ordinary event. We're meant to be passionate people. We're meant to be attracted to others. We're meant to move towards situations that have some kind of energy for us. But, and, and that's why, in some sense, um, the, it's not attraction that's the problem. It's attachment, which is a different energetic. Or even worse, clinging and grasping are really the best words for the kind of root clasia there, the root problem. It's not that we're drawn to things, but that we think that they're going to fill a hole Somehow, as opposed to just communicating with them, you know, in a kind of natural way. That's mm-hmm. It's misunderstood, I think, Buddhism that way, that you're supposed to be chaste and kind of um, Spartan in some way to achieve uh, this. But it's, it's the end of misinterpreting one sensation for another, which is attraction has now morphed into clinging, grasping, craving. And, mm-hmm. and everybody can relate to that. I mean, golly, man, you just, you know, I think... When you talked about our current society, I would say this is the realm that's really, really dominating right now. Hmm. Materialism is is a hungry ghost realm. There's no contentment. You never have enough. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and then the antidote to that, which is uh, another thing that's lacking in our in our mm-hmm. society right now, and that's cultivating generosity. Let's let's talk about that for a minute. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the the way I've been talking about practice lately is it's cultivation, like in the sense of qigong. You know, you're cultivating qi, you're cultivating compassion, you're cultivating mindfulness, you're cultivating devotion, whatever the practice is. It, it allows you to fill up that cup by steadily and deliberately pouring into that cup. So you're replenishing, you're restoring something. And the hungry ghost realm is an absence of generosity towards yourself, towards others. There's a feeling that, you know, that um, there's not enough to, of scarcity. There's not enough to go around. And so by practicing generosity, you actually, you actually unplug, uh, you know, the basic driver of the, of the, of that universe. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do when you're in that state of mind, right? Like if, if you're desperately craving something, you said, I'll share this with you. It right away unplugs the uh, the fixation. Right. But it's hard. Yeah. And, and the hungry ghost realm is really hard. And the, the beings in it traditionally have tiny little mouths and little skinny necks and a huge belly. So that's the perfect metaphor for it. Um, you You can't fill it. You can't fill your giant stomach with that tiny little mouth <laughs> right. Right. it's it's got a good humor to it do you see that yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not not without humor yeah um painful though yeah but just just thinking about it yeah if as you just said mm. if you you know it, it could be the most simplest thing of sitting mm. down to dinner with somebody and you've made the dinner I mean, I've I've actually have gone through this, and yeah. and there, whatever you you might be, it's a let's just call it a pizza, and yeah. it's a small pizza that really <laughs> you know it's one of these small packaged pizza that you get, it's frozen pizza, and you cut it, but you made a mistake, and you cut <laughs> it, one side is is larger than the other, right. right, and you're going, you know, I'm really hungry, and I have a guest here. Um, and you actually your mind goes through a flip-flop of what you're going to give how are you going to share this thing you know yes it's absolutely and then which brings me to the next realm by the way this is a direct um segue segue into the next realm which is the hell realm okay yes you're Uh, going down I'm going down. You can go up through the realms or down, and you're going down. I'm going down. <laughs> the experience of the hell realm is dominated by feelings of of aggression towards others and disgust with ourselves. That pizza, if you know, as I thought to myself that I was actually going to give the smaller part of the pizza to my guest, a giant revulsion came over me, a disgust <laughs> with myself, and I fell into the hell realm, right? <laughs> It's characterized by bouts of uncontrollable anger or depression. I mean, another thing. I mean, this this is this stuff's killing me, Dave. Anger. <laughs> I'm killing you softly with your song. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, because I'm dealing with that too. Anger can leap explosively out of us when we fall into a hell realm state of mind, or it may fester and similar behind a wall of rage. From that point of view, it's easy to find fault with others, blaming them for our misery and pain. Yes, this is a realm, of course, that is uh, when we talk about how pernicious these realms, you know, from one to another. That this one is is just uh, a toughie. 
a real toughie because it's the it's epitome. The yeah, it's the bottom. It's this epitome of separateness. Well said. It's the epitome of separateness. You you, you literally can't connect. Um, and so the the remedy, the practice, if you can find your way to it, is loving kindness. That's what's missing. Meta, mm. you know, my tree. Mm-hmm. And um, since none of these realms, the whole uh, of the wheel of life, the six realms, is in the jaws of uh, this uh, um, deity or demon, if you want to call it, but it's really just a corpse, It's and it really represents impermanence. So in other words, none of them are permanent. That's a very, very powerful uh, thing to contemplate because when you're in the hell realm, it feels like I'm here forever. Yeah. And if anybody made a joke, for example, or something like that, you just couldn't couldn't go for it because you say, this is serious, I'm here. And actually, people, anybody who commits suicide is basically kind of coming to it from that realm. There's just no sense of a way out of any kind of relief in sight. You go up a little bit in the hungry ghost realm, it's like, oh, if I just could have a snack, I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, right. And then you're not. So there's always a little glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. But in the hell realm, the, the light's gone out, basically. Yeah. It's very dark. Yeah. But, I mean, even even not taking it to that extent uh, and, and taking my little example of discuss with yeah. myself uh, if I actually had a thought that I was going to give somebody something less than what I was going to give right. myself, right. and that was a, a sure. horror to me. Yeah. Uh, the, I think that the reality of understanding uh, a little bit about impermanence, which everyone eventually totally understands, right. Um, right. just understanding it a little bit is to uh, allow a little bit of space into the situation so that you're not hammering yourself over the head and and you're able to go, I'm human and, you know... And that's that's what we're talking about here with the reality of impermanence and understanding that, right? Well, and there's two really important things in what you just said. One is a little bit of space, which is the whole point of meditation. That's mm. what meditation introduces. It introduces a gap or a space where you, the impulse and the response are separated by a little awareness, you know. So, so um, that's an important point. You're breaking the cycle at that point, according, according to these teachings. And the other is the human realm is the place where you want to get to. In this, if this were a video game, it, the whole game, the first round, you'd be trying to figure your way through the realms and see if you could get to the human realm, which is not the obvious conclusion for some people practicing spiritual, that it's okay to be a human being. They're trying to get to the God realm. They think they, they need to get some divine kind of thing. But in the human realm, actually, we can make mistakes and learn from them. And that's powerful. There's a certain balance, as you would put it, between the pleasure and the pain. You're sort of halfway between. You're suspended, and you're going up and down and up and down. So you're experiencing a lot of gap, a lot of impermanence, which manifests as curiosity, uh, the desire to learn more, uh, which is what, like we are human beings studying the Dharma, our various Dharmas, and we can see the writing on the wall. We're, We're uncertain about it all. And so that opens up a kind of space of exploration. And that's where the Buddha teaches the Dharma in official way is in the human realm. That's Shakyamuni Buddha is a human being teaching human beings. Mm. So that's the meaning of that. Yeah. Um, 
moving along to something you know from our hell realms here uh, <laughs> the realms are fun right isn't it fun yeah except when you start to identify with all the shit in them that you <laughs> found yourself yeah. Yeah. Uh, unable to get that little spaciousness but then we get to uh i love this dave grandmother's <laughs> advice for practice Oh yeah, okay. and this reminds me of of the kind of stuff that we're doing around the life and balance that I talked about that we created, um, and uh, and we're talking about spaciousness and creating that that uh, gap as uh, mm -hmm. you just mentioned. Uh, but I love this uh, taking a friendly attitude. Okay, everybody mm. out there, we got th this is probably I would say this is the most critical, mm -hmm. um, the most critical. Uh, first steps that we can take in relation to being caught in any of these realms right. uh, whatsoever. It's best to take a gentle, friendly attitude towards ourselves right from the beginning. Compassion will do a lot to assuage the grasping, aggressing, and ignoring that persists even when practicing meditation. The single most powerful ally we have as we explore and awaken from our daydream is gentleness and kindness towards ourselves. Now, okay, David, Nick, Dern, how do we get there? <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, I was in, in, uh, in Japan. I just got back last night oh, uh, really? oh. from 10 days in Japan. I have this wonderful group of students there. And it's so interesting because, you know, it's a different culture, but, and it's a culture that generated a lot of the Buddhist, uh, you know, culture and, and teachings that, that we study or at least propel them along. But I have, you know, a young student there and there's a kind of mentoring relationship and he's in business trying to create a Dharma center and a yoga center. And I sometimes I'm coaching people like that as part of the mentoring, you know, and I said, look, let me just tell you, I'm not your teacher. Pain is your teacher. <laughs> you know, in other words, I'm just telling you mistakes that I've made and that you're about to make basically. Mm -hmm. So, which is our role, you know, Raghu, at this point in our lives, we've, we've sort of been, we're like old soldiers, you know, we've been through the wars a certain amount and you see somebody coming along and you, you learn by making mistakes. That's how you actually learn. People rarely learn without making mistakes. So maybe some sense of humor is how you get there. Mm. Uh, some some sense of ripening of um, you know uh, of one's own practice to the point where you do recognize that gentleness is what it's all actually about. Uh, you know, the Maharaji says, right, love everyone and tell the truth. Uh, I, I've passed that along to people as what I call pith instructions from a guru. Very short, concise instructions. If you can, if you can do that, you're really rocking. So love everyone includes yourself, right? Yeah. The uh, working with teachers and a sangha is is a helpful thing. It's a jewel because those people um, can help you to create an environment in which it's okay to be gentle and it's okay to be friendly and uh, it's okay to be flawed. You know. Um, so I think the teach, you know, it comes down to like the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are the three guides for the process that you're talking about. So when you say, how do you get there? I would say, get yourself a Buddha, a Dharma, and a Sangha and start to practice and 
everything I've said in this book is just stuff I learned from Trungpa Rinpoche. There's not a, a word in there that wasn't direct lineage transmission. I tried to voice it in a way that would make it, you know, maybe accessible. Uh, uh, but that was his intention anyhow. So there, there's no real sense of trying to be creative here in a, in a certain way or trying to kill it or something like that, just pass it, passing it through. And, you know, all these teachings have been incredibly helpful to me in my life. So I'm trying to just, um, in my own way, pass, pass that along. Yeah. And in fact, is it not true when the Buddha was asked out of the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, Satsang, community, which of those is the most important? And he immediately said, Sangha. Okay? Is that not uh, true? I think well, that's true. Well, you know, true. I'm not sure of that, so it could be true. I can't confirm that I think it's true. Um, and I think it's I need you to confirm that. this, Dave, because I've yeah. been saying this for 20 years now to people. Get yourself yeah. into a Sangha. Buddha yeah. said it himself. It's the most important first step. And actually, I'll, I'll, I'll actually take this, uh, something I've mentioned before, but um, I go, as you well know, uh, to uh, India quite a bit, and I go see uh, this uh, woman saint, Siddhima, who takes care of Maharaji's temples in India, who's still there. And uh, somebody asked her, what is the most important thing that I can do to to get closer to Neem Karoliba or get closer to the one, whatever. And she immediately said, the absolute best thing that you can do is get with satsang, get with a group, like-minded, she didn't say like-minded, but get with a group and focus all of your collective attention on that on the one. She didn't say it mm. quite that way either, <laughs> but I'm, I'm making it more general. And share, share food, share love, and share the the name in this case, you know, chanting and so on. So and and I don't know. Maybe Sharon or Jack told me that Buddha. I think it was Jack that Buddha did say that the most important of the three jewels is is sangha. And I guess I really feel that for people, it is a such an advantageous uh, moment when you can feel yourself in a group with that kind of one pointed um, uh, intention, mm -hmm. and that carries you into your daily life when you're not in in that group you you have that shared uh, intention and shared experience and shared ability to uh to to create some spaciousness in your life sure yeah and it's there's a couple of subtleties to what you know the area you're talking about and we would have to check i think you know with jack or sharon if that was a, a attributable quote yeah because i i can't confirm it myself but um Two thoughts come to mind. One is in the absence of the guru in, in an embodied state, the sangha is the body of the guru, hmm. literally, because the guru is not embodied. So the sangha is sort of carrying the kind of physicality of the guru, in, yeah. and it's sort of distributed throughout the sangha. So I think in our both our cases, uh, you know, Neem Karoli Baba and, and Trungpa Rinpoche, they're not embodied at this point. We're, we're carrying their uh, dharma w with us, and it's sort of by working with a number of different students and, you know, and uh, having good uh, satsang, as you're saying, is very, very important. But the other thing that came to mind, Raghu, is that in the, in the Vajrayana teachings of Buddhism, there's a fourth refuge. And I don't know if, you're, if this is something you've heard talk about. 
But when you're practicing Tantra in Buddhism, there's a fourth refuge, which is the Guru. So you would say, I take refuge in the Guru, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And the Guru is a higher refuge than the Buddha even. So the point of that is, if you have a living, embodied teacher, this is a highly accelerated opportunity to have, as we say, get the Buddha placed in the palm of your hand directly from a lineage holder, a transmitter. So that's worth mentioning too. That's not so easy to find. Uh, uh, but I think if you look at your own experience, you'll understand what I'm referring to there. That's like a very direct transmission when you, when you have that. Yeah. Uh, and I would just say to everybody, because I get to ask this a lot from people writing in. Yeah. Uh, no, you can't find it. It's going to find you. Okay. Mm-hmm. You cannot find that kind of a, a being that's beyond duality. Uh, as uh, David said earlier, is not attached to guru ness nor uh, non-attached. Okay, that's a, that finds you. Okay, you don't find it. What uh, you, you do find is is certainly getting out there and vibing with teachers that you feel good about and feel like they have something to offer to you that point the way. Uh, that certainly is something to do. Uh, but in, in terms of uh, 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 those kinds of beings that David is talking about, uh, we're talking they will find you. So less pressure on going out there and kind of trying to find that thing, I think, is a good thing. Yeah, uh, I wasn't looking. <laughs> I, wasn't doing I mean, anything. I must have been, but I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it in some way. I, um, yeah. <laughs> the Tibetans basically fell on my head, is the way I look at it. I never even went. I never even left the country. Right. That's right. You, you didn't know, even leave. It the just country. fell. All the great lamas of the 20th century basically were kind of put on a, uh, you know, just came here and 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 through the connection with Trungpa Rinpoche, then that was kind of all available. Yeah. So very fortunate boy. That, but uh, one other thing, Raghu, which is in the book, I talk about in grandmother's advice, which is an old Buddhist saying, is that there's a sort of folk wisdom quality to all of this is there are three levels of teachers because I think people are looking for teachers these days mm. and they think the only level of a teacher is a guru. Yeah. And that's not true in Buddhism. There is a preceptor, which is a kind of somebody who's a little bit of a senior student and who knows some of the stuff. There's a Kalyana Mitra, which is a spiritual friend right. or mentor. And then there's a guru who's a master. And a lot of people these days, I think, need the Kalyana Mitra level just an older person who's been around, who's really willing to like lay it out there and spend time. This is very rare in its own way. Um, and, and maybe that person does not have the qualities that you're talking about of being completely perfected. And, but they're, they have a lot of compassion and they have some experience. And, and so people like you and your Sangha, you know, and, and AD, that's the role I think we can fulfill for younger people. It's really take an interest in who they are and, um, not just by saying, oh, pointing to the picture of the, the guru, but really by connecting personally. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love that Kalyana Mitra. Um, that's something I haven't thought about in a long time and or, nor heard that term. That's fabulous. I think we, we need to uh, explore it a little bit more in some of the things that we're doing. Um, Dave, before we go, because we're getting to the end of the show, I, I do would love you to share with us, uh, how about a Tonglen meditation? would be uh, fabulous. Just a, you know, a short thing, whatever. Uh, yeah. Please do share that with us. And also tell us what, what uh, Tonglen meditation really is. Well, just 
a short uh, explanation, yeah. which is Tong Len means sending and taking. That's what the two words are in Tibetan. It's part of a, a much larger topic called Lojong or mind training in a compassionate way. And the real theme is exchanging oneself for others. So to put it really simply in terms that you just laid out, you give the bigger piece of pizza to the other person. <laughs> you, if there's rocks and sand on the piece that you take, that's okay too. Um, so there's a sense of um, giving up that which we would hoard and giving that to the other. And there's also a sense of taking on kind of trouble and distress that the other person might be carrying and say, I'm willing to hold some of that uh, with you. So it's, it's a compassion practice, a deep, deep compassion practice. Um, there is a notion that it's, it can be misunderstood because you're not trying to toxify yourself by taking on other people's crap. It's not codependent. There's some understanding that all of it's sort of empty and impermanent in a way. And, and so you're not, you are not saying, give me that and I'll make myself sick with it. You're purifying it in a way and then redistributing it back out to space because you understand how to, how, to, how to not hold on to it, not cling to it. So that's important, because otherwise you could make yourself sick doing something like this. So the, in the instruction, uh, it says, ascending and taking should be alternated on the medium of the breath. So you link up the process of exchange with your own breath. The exhale is a really good opportunity to send out to somebody else. You know, you, you're sending out light, you're sending out joy, you're sending out a sense of balance and well-being, as you said. And on the in-breath, you're taking in any kind of dark, heavy, thick uh, energy that may be coming from the other person. So you're overcoming your own habit of hoarding your own goodies and, and trying to stay away from other people's problems. That's, that's really, it's really the practice is really for the person who's doing it. They say in a very advanced practice, you could actually be affecting the outcome, but really at our level, what you're doing is you're working with your own habit. So that's the important point. And it starts with just um, visualizing the kind of abstract quality of those energies. So you could actually breathe in some kind of soot or heaviness or thickness. Breathe it in, delicious. Mm. And on the out breath, you let go of some kind of light, uh, joyful, sparkly kind of energy. And then you begin to synchronize that with your breathing. So on the in breath, everybody, you could Breathe in that dark, heavy, thick energy. And on the out-breath, light, clean, spacious. Breathe in, dark, heavy, out, light, spacious. And you get that rhythm going. And then in the formal practice, you can just bring to mind somebody you want to work with. Uh, it's often a good practice for somebody you know who's going through a hard time, like maybe they're ill or even dying. Um, and you think of that person and directed practice to them, uh, straight, straightforwardly to them. So let's say we're thinking of a friend who's having, you know, cancer or something like that. We're actually breathing in their stress, their anxiety their pain, taking it into ourselves. And on the out-breath, we're sending them clear, light, loving, open-hearted acceptance. Continue that, that person in mind, alternating on the breath. 
and you can continue like that for a while. And then if you like, you can sort of uh, generalize and, and take the practice expanded to other people who are suffering in the same way. Maybe there's all the people, I have a dear friend who has cancer right now, so all the people who are suffering from that. And a lot of it is not knowing what's going on and a kind of anxiety about the future. So that all that psychological energy you can breathe in. And you have plenty of room for it. Breathe out a sense of relief. Clarity. Acceptance. Then there are other variations, but basically at the end, you return to the more abstract uh, version and then gradually dial that down and come back to kind of mindfulness of the breath, just letting go of the practice, letting go of the form of the practice, just being present. And really let it dissolve. In any form of formal practice, we should really allow it to arise from emptiness and allow it to dissolve at the end so we don't hold on to it. So it's a very condensed form of Tonglen. I think, you know, probably if you're going to do it, you should do it for 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. Wonderful, David. Thank you so much for that and share that with everybody, all of our listeners and uh, tuning into Mind Rolling and Be Here Now Network. And uh, and our, I'm going to get it right up on our Heart Mind app because I think this is a, uh, it's a fantastic antidote to uh, self, our, our day-to-day self-interest, basically. Yeah. It, uh, it's, it's just a, a wonderful thing and a wonderful meditation. Thank you so much. So David Nickturn, Awakening from the dream, Daydream, and uh, our friend... Uh, what is it? Krishna Das? Where is it? Krishna Das says, um, "You slowly open your tired eyes a little and see the smiling face of your friend calling to you. That is this book, calling out to wake us from our dreamy slumber." Huh? <laughs> it re- really is. It's uh, and it's very. Uh, I also love that it's kind of a little pocket size, not pocket pocket, yeah. but it's smaller than than a than a. A usual paperback, uh, and uh, that enables you to fit it easily into your, into almost any pocket. Maybe not your yeah. front jeans pocket, but you know a jacket pocket, and take it everywhere with you, and be able to just uh, you know because it's got all these practices, uh, antidotes to, to to the uh, more horrific realms that we get ourselves into. So pick this up. And you, uh, by the way, another self-serving thing for uh, Mind Rolling is, uh, and Be Here Now Network, uh, go through the Amazon uh, link and get that bookmarked up because uh, we'd love for you to uh, help support what we're doing here and we get a little piece of it and get David's book on Amazon through our link. My, oh, my, great. my. Yeah. Yeah, right. that's, uh, yeah, that's one of the ways yeah. that... You know, uh, Amazon sold out of the book like in two days. And oh, they you're just, kidding. Fantastic. Yeah, they just reordered. I, I don't know how many they ordered, but they just reordered. And so as of October 14th, it's back in stock. Oh, okay. Um, All right. So well. it, is, it is in stock there. And oh, well, you can also you... get it 
other ways, but I love the idea of going through your site and you guys get a little, yeah, a little piece of that. So you that must have been yelling at the publisher though a little bit on that. Yeah, one. but I, you know, uh, I tried to <laughs> With yell full equanimity, gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! All right, well, you know me, I'm nudgy. I just nudge. Oh, so uh, thanks again, David, for for being with me here and being with us here. And uh, uh, you'll hear a lot more from David because we're we're also uh, David's going to be a, a guest podcaster on uh, Be Here Now Network. So he's we're going to take some of the things that he does and share them with everybody. So thank you. And thank you, this Rick. is uh, mind rolling, and we shall see you next week on the Be Here Now Network. <laughs> 